MailChimp presents. Clusters aren't always a bad thing. Like a cluster of stars in the night sky, or those crunchy little clusters in your cereal. But you know what's never good? A clustomer. A clustomer is what happens when marketers group customers with very different behaviors into one big messy audience. Like when someone receives a new customer coupon code, but they're already an existing customer. Intuit MailChimp can help. They offer email marketing personalization tools that help marketers send product recommendations and discounts based on behavior data, turning your customers back into the unique customers that they are. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide number of customers in 2021 and 2022. The Jump is a podcast where I, Shirley Ann Manson, sit down with musicians and talk about the one song that changed everything. Okay, I'm going to be completely honest. I had absolutely no idea of where this interview was going to go. So more than any other person on this show, I knew very little about Dave One as a person. I knew Chromio's music, all the arch references, the slick production, but absolutely next to nothing about Dave One himself. Since 2002, Chromio has released five albums of critically acclaimed electro-funk party music. But Dave Wan is not your average partying rock star. He talks about music in a very cerebral kind of way. And I have to say it was both disarming and, and really delightful. And he came across very differently from the kind of music he makes. Just listen, you'll see what I mean. Listen, thank you so much for coming in today and speaking to me. You're very welcome. I have to say, for those who can't see Dave right now, he walked in looking like a complete rock star. And that doesn't happen very often I mean, anymore. Look, you're, you know. I know I'm good at being one too. I'm just saying it doesn't happen very often to me when a male rock star walks in the room and he looks like he's supposed to look. Thank you. You're welcome. I like the idea of being in, not in character, but like, yeah, in character all the time. Like, there's a really amazing picture of kiss on the subway in new york and they're wearing their makeup on the subway mm -hmm. i don't know if they wore their makeup on the subway every day in the 70s and 80s but i love that idea of just like if you're a musician you should be in character all the time like it would break my heart if i saw one day iggy pop wearing sweatpants so i've noticed this about you now it's actually a, a question i wrote down in my notepad was that you talk about persona a lot yeah yeah i do I get irritated by the myth of the sort of like sincere, all-bearing artist. I think it turns you off. I find it a little cheesy mm -hmm. because I, I like the idea of building a persona. And I think that all our favorite artists do it, even the most sincere ones. You know, my dad's a huge Bob Dylan fan, so I grew up around Bob Dylan. When this guy gave interviews, it was like lie on top of lie and web of like myths about himself. And are you from Minnesota? Are you from New York? Who's what's going on? And sure. I like that idea of like self-created and self-perpetuated mythology and a character that we're I mean, because that's why we picked up the instrument to begin with. And what do you mean by that? Because I would 
Putting on a performance is one thing, because that is part, I think, of being a musician. Yeah. You know, like you want to take people away on a fantasy ride. And yep. Dylan did that. He yep. like he created fire for people to jump into. But the music itself was very sincere. I mean, it's we don't have sincerity barometers. I mean, we think it's sincere. It's Well, we it's, have our own, no? We have our own. But I mean, I don't think we're in a position to really go into the artist's psyche and see what their intentions were. Some people think my music is sincere and it is to some degree but it's a little bit arch it's a little bit self-aware it's a little bit sincere i mean it's a mix just a little bit <laughs> enough of it yeah i guess i'm a proponent of when somebody's got a really good bed hair mm-hmm. they didn't wake up like that they spent four hours <laughs> some people did no they oh, did not on. it's not true it's not true of course it's true they woke up it didn't look quite right. They spent six hours. They don't want you to know. And then they walked out with the perfect so bed hair. It's cynical, Dave. It's not cynical. I just believe that that um, it's it's a very classical idea. And it's, um, I'm going to be pretentious for a second. I love pretension. Okay, there's a Latin, there's a Latin word for it. It's a negligentia diligence, which means studied negligence. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. I'm not a huge Kurt Cobain fan, but I know that this guy, the songs were power chords, but he studied the Beatles so hard. You know, like even someone who gives the impression of being a total nonchalant slacker, they're not. Are you, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, I'm not 100% sure of what's happening here. <clears throat> me are neither. you saying, <laughs> well, that's perfect, isn't mm-hmm. it? So are you saying that there is no truth? At all, it doesn't exist. There's no sincerity at all. It doesn't exist. No, I think that we've all sincerely work hard at our craft. We're not walking around making cynical music that you can't sustain a whole life doing that. But I think that spontaneity is overrated. Oh, without a doubt. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sincerity, sure. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it just comes out without self-reflection, without neuroses, without multiple vocal takes, without overdubs. Mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time believing that Fair for enough. most of us mortals. Marvin Gaye may be one take, no overdubs. Okay. But the rest of us mortals, we're overdubbing. We're putting product to have a bed head. We're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> You're we're, ruining my reputation. We're in character. And it's not a question of sincerity, but we're working at this. Sure. That's all. Of course. Okay. So my questions, I have many questions, actually. I have to say uh, that yeah. I I couldn't believe your story when I started examining it. Because, you know, you have this music, which is, in my mind, great fun party music, you yeah. know, feel good, really well written, really incredibly well produced, Thank and you. has sort of maintained this kind of standard throughout your entire career. But when I started looking you up on the internet, I was like, I cannot believe this person exists. Like, okay, hold on. I've got questions. I need them answered. All right, let's go. Before you became a professor, is it a professor or a lecturer? Lecturer. A lecturer at Barnard. And Columbia. And Columbia University. What was your story? Did you study music? Did you go to music school? No. Did you come from a musical family? No. Where did the musical street come from? Well, I was like a dorky Jewish kid, and my grandmother was worried that I wasn't going to have a lot of friends in elementary school, so she <laughs> she offered me guitar lessons at nine years old. But I was just playing music as a hobby. I always took it seriously enough to go to band practice every weekend and to have my own little bands in high school, and I never thought it would be my career. I was always an academic. That's really what I wanted to do since the age of 15 or 16 is I wanted to be a literature professor. Mm -hmm. I come from 
a family that was modest enough that I couldn't just go and live in New York City, but it was my dream to live in New York City. I'm from Montreal, Canada. One of the ways I could do it was to get a scholarship at a grad school in New York. So I did an undergrad in Montreal, a master's degree in Montreal, and then I went to Columbia University for a PhD program. And then that got me to New York City. I was always doing music on the side, different bands, different little projects. By then, I had this little thing called Chromio, but... And it was your side hustle. Yeah. It wasn't even a hustle because we weren't making money. It was just my side. (laughs) (laughs) So then the rest is sort of history. We played our second show ever one month after I moved to New York City, and we got signed to Vice Records, which... At that time, was an imprint under Atlantic. So, but it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, it operated like an indie. And we had a, another indie deal in Montreal. So we were just like an indie band, but we really didn't know how it worked until we put out our second album and stuff. But again, it was like this was the thing I would do on weekend or over summer holiday or over Christmas break. So, you know, what we like to do is, is sort of examine a moment in an artist's career where they feel like all of a sudden something clicks and they find their yep. legitimate musical direction or force. I have a few or, of those. Well, good. I mean, I do too. Is that normal to no, have I, like... I would, don't ask me about normal. I wouldn't have okay. a clue. But I think most people, Plausible. most artists must have these moments. Right. I think so. But you picked... I picked one You picked particular. one, which is the last track off your second record. That's right. Right? Yep. The name of which yeah, is... The song is called 100%. And... It's the closing track, right? Yeah, but it's the first one we wrote. Our first album had just come out, so this is early 2004, and... And you got a lot of love. No, we got a lot of hate. No, that's yes, not I true. swear to you on the first one, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no. you got a lot of love too. Not yet. We were playing shows in front of five people. We got a lot of media attention, but people did not know what to make of us because the music we were referencing at that time in the early 2000s wasn't cool yet. People were liking 80s music, but they liked music that, say, James Murphy or Fisher Spooner or The Rapture or those kinds of groups, even The Killers and all that, were referencing was like New Wave. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Rick James no. and Cameo and Hall and & Oates. And we came out referencing that. So people were like, are you kidding me? It made people uncomfortable. So, but that's essentially what we were doing in the early 2000s. People didn't know what to make of us. And were you aware that you were being smart and ahead of your time? Or was this just what you were into? It was both. We had played funk and we knew and loved funk music since our teenage years. But at one point we had experimented with producing hip hop and, you know, we grew up listening to like this kind of music called acid jazz and worshipping people like Giles Peterson, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of like... So we had done our homework. But the kind of 80s stuff, we were aware that people thought that was naff. But we were like, this is genius. And craft work is genius. And African Bambada is genius. You know, drum machines are amazing. Synthesizers are fascinating. Mm-hmm. We were sincerely in awe of that. Yeah, as, and, as a lot of people were. But we wanted to give it its nobility. 
in a way. And so we were like, look, we're going to do to that music what Steely Dan did to the music they were into. You know, we come at it from sort of a cerebral way, but it's also out of a sincere, genuine love. Mm -hmm. But nobody got that on a first album. <laughs> People were like, what are you guys doing, you goofballs? You're signed to Vice Records. Like, get out of here with this crap, you know? So here we are. Our first album comes out. There's not a lot going on for us. And the label's like, well, maybe we could do some kind of feature. Like, who's your dream collaboration? And I said, I don't know, Nate Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Basically, he was like, come to L.A., come meet Nate Dog. come to his house. He'll play you what he did on your song. We went. We were beyond starstruck. I think it was our second time here. And we went and heard the song. And... I was on cloud nine. Then the manager took me aside and said, it's going to cost $100,000, but I'll give it to you for $70,000. So that was out. I knew that was going <laughs> to languish on a hard drive and never. Oh. But I was so ecstatic. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this is real. One of my idols just heard my music, sang on it. Maybe there's something there. Maybe this can click. And I came back to my hotel. And, Which hotel? Paint well, a picture. They put us up at this hotel in Beverly Hills called the Hermitage. Oh, yeah. L'Hermitage. Fabulous. Had, I, I mean, again, yeah. we, when we were touring, we were sharing a bed in a Motel 6. Of course. So this is like it you get flown to L.A. You're at Raffles Hermitage. You just met Nate Dog. You were living the dream, baby. It was beyond. It wasn't even... I, my dreams weren't as good as this. <laughs> so, so I remember after that meeting, I came back to my room laid down and then wrote the song. And that was going to be our first song we wrote off our second album. And when we approached the second album, something must have happened because when our second album came out, everything changed. We walked into sold out shows critical acclaim, just like something completely shifted. The dream began. I guess so, yeah. Aside from the fact that it's the first song you wrote, what is dear to you about this particular song? I feel like we nailed the matrix that was going to become this chromio blueprint where like the production was slick enough, the vocals were sincere enough, there was some wink-wink with like an interwoven guitar and saxophone solo, you've got, we're checking that box. The wink-wink box. The wink-wink box is checked. The sincerity box is checked. The production works. I just felt like we found our form. And then we used that as the blueprint and the second album wrote itself. Wow. So how did you write the song? Like, was it on guitar, keyboard? No, I, I don't write on guitar. I, I play guitar, but I don't write on guitar. How I do just, you write? I just lie down and I sing to myself. Yeah. I Acapella? Mm-hmm. And I sing every part in my head. And so, like, that song, I just remember, like, the bass line was going to be this kind of Michael... Hold on. You wrote this song basically in your own mind. Yeah, I always... That's how I write all my stuff. You write all your material like that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's very cerebral. I, I can't... If I sit down Who at an instrument... are you? <laughs> it are doesn't you come. To, it doesn't come to... I mean, it doesn't come to me when I sit at a keyboard. I, I have to be in my head, close my eyes, and then, like, I just can hear every instrument. So you come up with a song. Yeah. You have established it in your brain. Yep. My partner writes very differently, and we both write, so it's, you know, but for me, I have the whole song in my head. But this then, song specifically, you wrote song, yourself. Yep, I wrote. I did. So you took it to him. 
took it to him and I was I just sang every part and he he's he's made music long enough with me to know that you know if I sing like all right the chords got to go boom boom even though that's just one note he'll know how to voice it so you're just in sync with him. Yeah, we're so in sync that he'll know how to voice the chord. And no, not quite. Nah, I don't like that. It's too jazzy. Make it, make it just more straightforward. Okay, cool. So you took it to a studio when you signed. I took it to, to his him. basement. To we, his basement. Yeah, yeah. In his house. He was still living in his mom's house in Montreal. And did you know that you had a cracker? A jewel? We knew that this was the beginning of us gelling as a band because on our first album we didn't know what we were doing we had never even written songs before really like i had never sang in front of a microphone it was like whatever experimenting wow. but the second one we we knew that this was like a leap and nothing's gonna reproduce that feeling of being at your best friend's basements in the mom's house eating leftovers in your boxer shorts on a sleepover on a weekend writing what you think is the best music you've ever made, you know? So when you bring it to Patrick yeah. and you sound out the song to yep. him, yep. does he get as excited as you are if he at, likes this, it. at this point? Yeah, if he likes it. Yep. Well, did he like it? He loved it. Okay, so he starts sounding things out on instruments for you or with you? With me, because I'm like, okay, let's get a bass, let's get a Moog kind of bass. Right, yep. and does he ever ask you what are the lyrics about, what story he are you telling? He gets it, he's like, it's more a mood. It'd be like, no, imagine we're driving at night and we're in the car and you have the city lights. It's more like an atmosphere. Right, a feeling, know? yeah. A feeling. And also, to be honest, this, I don't, I don't want this to sound cynical, but he usually will be like, this sounds like X, this sounds like Y. You know, he's able to pick apart the references. Do you guys pride yourself on knowing, like being mus like musically educated? Yeah. You embrace it. Embrace it. I think a lot of musicians are total music nerds and they actually downplay it. And I don't know a lot of the people I would love to speak to about it. I don't Who know. Who would you like to speak to? I would love to be able to sit down with someone like Flea or Anthony Kiedis and be like, what happened the first time you heard Bootsy Collins? When mm -hmm. you first heard Funkadelic? Like, what were you thinking? Because they don't share that experience. And these are people whose music is heavily indebted to all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know? Because with Patrick and I, it's what we do all day. Is... And yet, you know, when you listen to your records, they are very disciplined. And yeah. they have gone down a certain sonic path and they've stuck to that. I love limitations. Interesting. Yeah. Why? I just think constraints are really good for creativity. I think it's safe for me to assume that during your recording career, you witnessed the transition from analog to digital and from having a finite number of tracks to an infinite number of tracks. And you know, like the infinite number of tracks is bad news. You know Can what I be. Mean? Can be. Yeah. Is this a limitation you want to impose on yourself for all eternity? Or is there going to be a moment where you decide, I'm going to bust out of this? No, it's going to expand a little bit. It can. I think now we're at a place where we're opening up a little bit to other things. When I listen to your music, and I know some of your background, yeah. it doesn't automatically sit together on a page logically. I know what you mean. I like, but I like Which that. Which I like that too. I think yeah. that's really interesting and fascinating. But it also made me think 
that you were also hiding something about yourself. But it's hidden in the music. Mm-hmm. But now on this next project I'm starting to work on, I want to weave in more personal things. I think I can touch on different things, anxiety and depression and mental health in a way that's going to be concealed. It's like it's going to be Do like... Do you have mental yeah. issues and yep. mm-hmm. depression and yep. anxiety? anxiety yep. Like a normal musician. Like a normal, doesn't yeah. everybody. And I know I can do it just like Niall did it with his jazz chords. I can just tuck it in. Has your relationship to your songs, particularly the lyrics, changed in the post-Me Too Yes, very much. Very, very much. There are songs that I... Well, there's lyrics that I'm like, "Mm, I wouldn't have written that now. Definitely. And I pay more attention now to like sort of, you know, a default heteronormalcy in our lyrics that maybe we we can take out or even... There's even like some weird, sometimes there's some like weird mansplainy things I don't like. <laughs> really? 100%. So I want to go back to you talking about how you, you want to like get a little more personal i do yeah why so every new album aka every new musical adventure that you embark on to me it's always like a reaction to your last one you know you just kind of react to what you did before and our last album it was like the boldest most in-your-face chromio record everything about our last album was dialed to the max you know it was our sleekest our poppiest our most polished and like the cover is like our campiest cover. Everything is like... It's not your campiest cover. I noticed you've got not. a couple of campy covers. Okay, fine. But it What's was... with the lady's legs? Please uh, explain that to me. Okay. On the second album, which is like where the chromio thing crystallized, it's like we need a symbol. And so friends of mine who were working with us on art direction, they were like, well, you guys are all about the synthesizers and you sing about, at that time, women again pre-Me Too. Now I want to say we sing about relationships, but at that time you sing about, well, you guys are crooners. So why don't we do a keyboard that rests on women's legs instead of in lieu of keyboard stands? And they referenced this very random ZZ Top video. ZZ Top was one of my biggest influences for Chromio. Me too. They're inc- Thank you. I'm yeah. so happy. So that, that that's why you like me. This, that is you why get, I like you. Because if you get ZZ Top <laughs> and the Beastie Boys, then you that's you're gonna like me. So there's this video of ZZ Top video where there's a table and woman's legs under it, and and that's and, and then you reprise that idea. Well, on the, the last one. album, we just wanted to close that chapter and and just be like, okay, this is us now, and we're gonna shave our legs, and just so we didn't have that kind of. They're dichotomy. your legs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Brilliant! I totally thought they'd be nope. photoshopped from babes. Nothing. Nope. There, you're like you've got a fine pair of uh, gams on you, thank as my you, mom would you. say. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> I've been told. So I've been told. Oh my god! So listen, you said that you dreamed of being an academic. Yeah. But then you accidentally, basically, became a really successful musician. Is it still shiny and new to be a musician? Or do you think ultimately you want to go back to academia? Is this just a breathing space? Did no, you? I'll stay a musician, but I'd like maybe eventually 
I'll go back to academia or to some kind of teaching, but maybe it won't be within an academic institution, you know, because... Did you just get turned off by no, it? No, no. It was actually, I was touring and working on my dissertation at the same time and teaching, and I, I had like a burnout. I got yeah, no sick. Wonder. Yeah. yeah. I did it for a long time. And at one point, I, re I really got sick. Physically and sick or mentally sick? Or a bit both. both. Yeah. Yeah. And It'll I, do that to you. And again, I, I wasn't diagnosed with anything yet. Like, I didn't know what I had or why I had those things that I was feeling. And, you know, I wasn't medicated or anything at that time. And I got sick. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to have to make a choice. And I decided to go with music. And... I mean, again, you don't have to answer this question no, at all. Are you comfortable anything. talking about your mental health? Very much. Have you spoken about it publicly? Not enough. Not I have, but not enough. Because why? I've, why not enough? Mm -hmm. There's no forum for us musicians to talk about that, and it, I think there should be more because there's very little in place to keep musicians sane. No, I'm into that. I mean, that's right? why I want to talk about it because I feel like the more of us speak out, we might actually save a couple more, you know. Yeah. yeah I'm with all. you, brother. So listen, I feel like I have forced you to dig deep. No, I love long it. Long enough. It doesn't I, feel that it's way. It's been an absolute joy having you, you on here. And you are a contradiction, which <laughs> to me is a great compliment. It's a compliment? Yeah. Okay, great. You're not a bore. Thank you. Thank you so much for Thank coming you for in today. Me. My pleasure. Next week on The Jump, Nico Case. So I spent a lot of time not worrying about what I had to lose because I didn't have anything to lose, I guess. Which is sad on one hand, but a nice position to be in because if there's nothing people can take away from you, it doesn't hurt to speak up about it. The Jump is an original series from MailChimp, and I'm your host, Shirley Manson. It's produced in partnership with Little Everywhere, executive produced by Dan Gallucci, Jane Marie, and Rushikesh Hirway. Original music composed by Rushikesh Hirway. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.